Hi everyone, I'm Cam. And I'm Dev. And you are listening to Criminalish, a true crime podcast where two best friends trade stories ranging from the wild and wacky to the downright messed up. love listening to the Criminalish podcast? Want to hear more from Cam and Dev? Then consider becoming a subscriber for $2.99 a month. Subscribers will have exclusive access to minisodes, Dev and Cam's live reactions to crime shows and documentaries, as well as early access to any multi-part episodes and so much more. Click the link in the description if you're interested in subscribing. See y'all in cell block C. So before I get into the case today, I want to cover trigger warnings. I will be discussing self-harm in the context of the victim's daughter. So if that is a sensitive topic for anybody, listen at your own discretion. So Dev, today I will be talking about the murder of Darlene Sadler. Do you think you've heard of this case before? I don't think so. The name's not ringing a hard bell. So Darlene Sadler was born May 8th, 1959. I didn't get any information on where she was born. Unfortunately, a lot of the information I have is more around the time that she was murdered rather than her early life. She was born May 8th, 1959, and was 49 years old at the time of her death, which was September 18th, 2008. So this is a fairly recent case. So Darlene had four children, but I could only find the names for three of them. Jonathan, who was in his 20s. April, who was 16 at the time, and Abby, who was five. So Darlene had her kids kind of spread out. Abby came from her most recent marriage, which was to a man that she'd met 10 years prior. They'd actually separated a couple months earlier. So he moved to Bakersfield, California after their separation. And this was about two and a half hours away from where Darlene and her children were living in Santa Ana, California. So at around 2 p.m. on September 18th, 2008, Darlene's son, Jonathan, comes to her house and he was actually coming to drop off some furniture. And when he got there, Jonathan noted that it was a little bit strange because normally his mom would greet him at the door, but she wasn't at the door this time. So when he goes up to the house, he finds the front door unlocked and walks inside to find his mom lying face down on the floor of the kitchen with a knife sticking out of the back of her neck. There was also blood splattered on the kitchen walls and ceiling. So this is a pretty gruesome scene for Jonathan to walk into. And on top of that, Jonathan remembers that his five-year-old sister, Abby, should be home with his mother. So he goes looking for her and luckily he finds her alive in her bedroom. So he gets his sister, runs out of the house and is asking his sister what's happened. He figures out that she actually saw her mom be attacked. This poor baby. I could not imagine walking in just on a regular day to just go hang out with my mom to find a bloody crime scene and then be like, oh yeah, my little sister's in the house somewhere unaccounted for. The stress that he must have felt is insane. Oh, poor thing. I would be devastated and children that young are not able to fully understand what's happening and we actually find out that Abby tried to put a band-aid on her mom because she knew that she was hurt and a five-year-old's brain is saying oh when you're hurt you use a band-aid so I'm gonna cry I'm actually gonna cry yeah me too that actually is making me a little bit um it's making me a little bit emotional because it's just very very sad scene to walk in on So at this point, Jonathan calls the police and explains the situation. The dispatcher asked to speak to Abby and Abby said that she saw blood and saw her mom get killed with a knife. She described the attacker as a skinny man who wore black clothes and a black mask. And she also said that his hair was blue. 
this wasn't really ever cleared up. I believe this more came from, you know, Abby just being five years old and kids that young, they do have an imagination. And I'm not saying that their testimony is any less relevant, but there can be pieces of, pieces of their story that might not make sense because they might be trying to fill in the gaps. You're absolutely right that a lot of times kids will try to fill in gaps, especially when they think adults want more information than they're capable of giving. I have noticed this even with the children in my life and the little kids in my life. But what I do think is very interesting is that I would say that this five-year-old is incredibly brave because the level of description she was able to give in a moment of fear, because I'm sure it's a terrifying experience that kids may not know the concept of death and they may not fully be able to understand what's happening, but they know that it's bad and they know that it hurts and they know that this person is doing something to their mom that their mom doesn't want to be done. So I think it's incredible that she was able to give a description of what this person looked like at all. One, being five years old and two, I'm sure being absolutely terrified. Exactly. Like kudos to her for even being able to give this description because I I know that this was a traumatizing experience for her. So now I'm going to get into the crime scene. When police arrive, they find the scene that Jonathan described. They find Darlene lying face down between the sink and the stove with a knife sticking out of the back of her neck. They concluded that the knife actually came from a knife block Darlene had in her home. So the attacker did not bring this with them. They also found that Darlene was shot three times in the head before being stabbed. So definitely some overkill here. There was hatred because if she shot in the head three times, she's not surviving that. So there's some passion and there's some hatred on there. Police also found bullet fragments and one spent silver 22 caliber shell casing on the kitchen counter. They didn't find the other two shell casings and assumed that the attacker took the other two with them. They estimated the time of her death to be around 9.30 a.m., which was just four and a half hours before her son Jonathan arrived. So we're back to 22 caliber guns. Mm-hmm. Just like our last story, I guess it's the go-to. That's very interesting to me because I heard a story recently. I, I won't go into detail in case I also decide to cover it, but a 22 can only pierce the skull if it's very close range. Um, I was checking out this story where a man was shot in the face by his ex-girlfriend with a 22 caliber gun. And because she was too far away, it stopped on his skull right between his eyes. Oh my gosh. It's very much a gun that can only pierce the skull if it's close range. It was, and it was crazy. He survived, he survived. He's got a little scar on his forehead, but it's crazy to be like, I have a scar on my forehead because my girlfriend attempted to kill me. Crazy. So. They found that one shell casing, but assumed that the attacker took the other two. They also found small drops of blood in the hallway, as well as a large blood smear on the front door. And they concluded that the blood smear that they found on the door came from the attacker and that the attacker had been cut during the attack. And as they were leaving, they must have touched the door and left the blood smear. I'm absolutely sure they cut themselves. That's actually the number one way that police are able to track down people who commit specifically stabbing deaths because it's almost impossible to not cut yourself in a frenzied stabbing attack unless it's just one cut and done. If you stab somebody multiple times, especially with a knife from a kitchen block, you're definitely going to cut yourself. Thousand percent. And so I will say Darlene was only stabbed once. The attacker still did get cut. And left that blood smear. So police take the blood samples and send them off. During the autopsy, police remove the bullets from Darlene's brain. The forensic pathologist concludes that her death was a homicide caused by a combination of her three gunshot wounds as well as the stab wound in her neck. I found that her 16-year-old daughter, April, was temporarily put in a foster home but I was unsure where her five-year-old daughter, Abby, was placed. I'm not sure if Abby went with her father or if she went with other family members. Why did she, why did she go to foster care? Is this, I'm assuming the 16-year-old is not with the current husband whom she was separated with at the time of her death. So that husband was the 16-year-old's stepdad. 
that was April's stepfather. But he was not her biological father. Correct. And I couldn't find any information on her biological father. I'm not sure why she went to a foster home rather than going to a family member's house or another option. Especially if he was legally her stepfather, he has like almost a legal obligation to take her. I will say April did not really like her stepfather. Okay, noted. So on to the investigation. This crime honestly shocked the neighborhood to the point where people were wondering if this was just a random intruder because they couldn't fathom somebody that they might have known committing this crime. So one of the first things that police do is to get a more official interview from Abby. So they actually get a detective from a child abuse team who was specially trained to interview children. And this is where Abby talked about the fact that she tried to put band-aids on her mom. The detective asked Abby to, again, describe what her mom's attacker looked like. In addition to the information that Abby gave the dispatcher, she adds that the attacker looked like a ninja. This is another point where detectives are a bit curious about this information. It seems a little bit too unrealistic to have actually happened to have a ninja at this time with blue hair, they're thinking, coming in and attacking her mom. But they still do want to get whatever information Abby has. I mean, there is a certain level of scrutiny I think is fair for a five-year-old's description of an attacker because, again, she's terrified. Exactly. I genuinely feel like you're getting the best you can get out of a terrified five-year-old. And it's so sad that she even has to go through this at all. I am glad that they did get a detective who was specially trained to interview children. And I'm sure this detective has dealt with this before. And I think part of it, too, is trying to figure out what information you can pick out from that. So are, are they saying that the attacker was a purple unicorn because they were wearing a shirt with a purple unicorn on it? That could be true. So I think it's also that piece of the, the child is telling the truth, but we need to figure out where their truth is coming from. What does, where, where's the source of that truth? Is it, this is exactly what they saw or is this how their brain is remembering it? That's an important part that I didn't think about. All that to say, kids are very imaginative, but their imaginations are still usually based in some truth. So during this interview, Abby also drew two drawings, one with her mom's eyes closed and the second of the knife that the attacker used. So this made it very clear that Abby saw the gruesome scene and Abby saw her mom being attacked. Oh my God. It's a terrible thing for anyone to witness, but it's a terrible thing, especially for a child that young to witness that. Because those are formative years and this is now ingrained in your memory, ingrained in your being as a person. Oh, that's horrible. So police get to work and they start interviewing Darlene's family to try and figure out who could have done this. They start with Jonathan and him being the person to find Darlene, of course, they are looking at him. I don't think they're really suspecting him, but they have to cross this off the list. Suspect number one is always the person who finds the body. Exactly. Jonathan tells them that he was actually at work until he arrived at his mom's house and they're able to confirm this. But. He still consents to giving a DNA sample. Darlene's daughter, April, had been dropped off at her school by her mom around 7.15 a.m. And they were able to confirm that she was at school the entire day. She did admit that she had a tense relationship with her mom and they were constantly fighting. But to the police, she seemed genuinely devastated by her mom's death. I mean, what 16-year-old isn't fighting with their mother? Exactly. And then asked about who might have done this, April named her stepfather. I actually couldn't find the stepfather's name in the research that I did, but police then interviewed April's stepfather and Darlene's current husband, who she was separated from. They find out that despite their separation, they were still trying to reconcile their marriage. They had actually just put a down payment on a house in Santa Clarita, California. And this was actually a halfway point between Santa Ana, and Bakersfield. However, just a few weeks before her death, Darlene was actually having second thoughts about this and told her husband that 
She didn't want to move her daughters away from school and their friends. Jonathan, Darlene's son, confirmed that after Darlene told her husband she didn't want to make that move anymore, he threatened her. Darlene told her son that she was terrified of him. When police go to speak to Darlene's husband, he said that he'd last seen Darlene a few weeks ago. And according to him, they fought, but he would still describe their marriage as typical. I think it's very pathetic that he felt the need to threaten her because she was having second thoughts on a relationship that seemingly was already not on the best note. You guys were separated. And I do think that while some couples may need to separate and they get back together and everything is, you know, beautiful in the end. I also know those same couples didn't live with each other for about a year. (laughs) They weren't putting down payments on houses during their separation. Exactly. So very insecure. And I feel like that reason was a valid reason. You know, she does not want to uproot her daughter's lives, especially for a marriage that she maybe wasn't sure was going to work. I do believe that she loved him, but this just wasn't, it wasn't worth it for her to move her daughters out of a place they were comfortable in. I didn't note this before, but they had recently gotten separated. This had happened in the summer prior. So this was, Darlene was murdered in September and they gotten separated that summer before. So just a couple months before her murder. Yeah. If you're freshly separated, have you even gotten to the root of the problem? Have y'all gone to therapy? Has a discussion been had that would actually make her and her kids comfortable to pick up their lives for you? Exactly. So at this point, police are looking at Darlene's husband. According to him, he was at work the day of the murder. And police did confirm his alibi, but they're thinking that it still could be possible for him to have hired somebody to kill her. So the husband consents to a DNA sample and police test it against the blood on the doorframe and it was not a match. So they know that the husband himself did not kill Darlene, but they're still considering whether or not he might have hired somebody to kill her. At this point, the lab results come back and they show that the blood in Darlene's house came from three different people. The blood they found in the kitchen was Darlene's. I actually found this in the appeal. And side note, I learned from the It's the Mystery for Me podcast that appeal court trial documents is where you find all the tea. And that is true. There's so much tea in those trial documents. There absolutely is. That's where all the tea is. That's actually why I'm a big fan of Miss Emily D. Baker, because the shady stuff that is written out in these filings is on another level. It's a level of petty that I aspire towards. I aspire to be this professionally petty. So they actually found that there was DNA from an unknown male found on the knife, but this ended up not being matched to anyone's DNA that they tested throughout the investigation. The blood on the door came from an unidentified male. So at this point, they're thinking that the killer, the attacker, was male. And the small drops of blood they found came from an unidentified female. So the DNA on the knife, the DNA on the door, and the DNA of the blood droplets were three separate DNAs. Yes. The blood on the knife was Darlene's, and they found DNA from an unidentified male as well on the knife. The blood on the door, which they thought was the killers, the attackers, came from an unidentified male. And the small drops of blood that they found on the floor came from an unidentified female. And so they test the blood against all the members of Darlene's family, as well as the suspects as they're interviewing them. And the small drops of blood actually came from April. And when they ask her about this, she says that, yeah, that actually makes sense because there was a time when she was struggling with depression and was cutting herself. And she believed that the droplets that they these small drops of blood that they found in the hallway likely came from this and when I say small I really do mean very tiny droplets of blood and she actually showed the police her wrist to show them that unfortunately that was something that she was doing at that time so this wasn't fresh no but it, it was curious that they found the blood at the scene and so that's why they tested it but it was not related to Darlene's murder So how far is that hallway where they found April's blood in relation to the kitchen where they found Darlene's body? 
I'm not sure how far, how close or how far they are from each other. I want to know the relation of those two spaces because if the crime scene is the kitchen area, what made you swab essentially what seems like the floor of a hallway to find April's blood? Like what, what brought you over there to check that area out? So my understanding is that at first it kind of seemed like the droplets of blood were in between the door and the kitchen. So my understanding is that they were they were looking into that entire area and they found the blood maybe as they were tracing the, the attacker's pathway from the kitchen to the front door. Okay, that makes sense. Now on to the suspects. So police had already interviewed Darlene's husband and while they had cleared his alibi, they were still a bit suspicious of him and were considering whether he could have hired somebody to kill Darlene. The next person they interview was a young man who lived with Darlene for a time. This young man's mom was actually friends with Darlene and Darlene let him stay with her at a time when he was having a falling out with his parents. And this young man lived with her in 2006 when he was 18 years old, but Darlene kicked him out because she found him fooling around with April, who was only 14 at the time. Oh, hell no. Yeah. Oh, hell no. <laughs> so you can imagine Darlene is like, what are you, an 18-year-old, doing with my 14-year-old daughter? I would have committed a heinous act against this young man. For me, and I'm going to only speak for myself, but I truly, truly believe that people who mess with children, people who do mess up things to kids, there's a special place in hell for you. And I feel no sympathy whatsoever. I don't care the circumstances. I don't care what happens. There's no reason for you as an adult to ever touch a child, ever. I don't understand why that's allegedly such a hard concept to grasp. And as an 18-year-old, what do you want with a 14-year-old? Talk about it. Let's talk about it. It is strange. And so because Darlene thought that this man might have committed statutory assault on her daughter, she kicked him out. Which made him angry. It made you angry? You're lucky all she did was kick you out. Because it sounds like you need to be on a list somewhere, sir. Exactly. Having to knock on your neighbor's doors, tell them who you are. That's what it sounds like. Agreed. Because she really could have reported him for this. So during his police interview, this young man confirms his relationship with Darlene's daughter, April. But he denied killing Darlene. And police test his blood against the blood in the doorframe and find that it was not a match. So while this man is dirty, makes bad decisions, and should not be around anyone's kids, police do not think that he killed Darlene. The next man they interview was a man staying in a sober living home in the same neighborhood that Darlene lived. They're interested in this man because they'd heard about him when they interviewed neighbors and found out that he'd fled to Bakersfield, which is where Darlene's husband lives. So this makes police suspicious and consider whether this man and Darlene's husband had conspired to kill her. So one of the places they investigate is a garage that this man was staying in. And in this garage, they find a shoe with an unidentified substance on it. After testing and further investigation, they realized that the substance was only oil and that there actually was no connection between this man and Darlene's husband. So police have interviewed a few suspects at this time, but have not found any definitive evidence linking anyone to Darlene's murder. But what's funny to me is clearly there's no evidence, there's no DNA, but how are all y'all so suspicious? <laughs> it's exactly, and getting linked to this crime. And I mean, I've seen in cases, I, I have seen cases where people get convicted on circumstantial evidence. I will say, depending on the case, circumstantial evidence is just as valid as direct evidence. Valid for submission, but in terms of a conviction, it, it can really be up in the air, especially if it's a trial with a jury, because you're hoping that the jury sees the connections that you do. And if, and if you're asking a jury to convict somebody beyond reasonable doubt, having only circumstantial evidence, which is why a lot of a lot of investigations really try and push for that direct evidence before they go to trial because they don't want that person to get off and not be able to try them again 
But there are definitely cases where I'm like, even though there was circumstantial evidence, I know for a fact that person did it. Exactly. Because circumstantial evidence, I think a lot of times people don't really understand what circumstantial evidence truly means. Circumstantial evidence isn't he was walking down the street next to where the dead body was found, so he killed her. Circumstantial evidence is they had a relationship. They were seen arguing. He was seen leaving her house the day she died. And he was also seen burning clothes at his home later that day. That's circumstantial evidence. So it's like, yeah, nobody saw him kill her. But all his actions before and after are mad shady. Mm-hmm. If you have a good enough lawyer, they could say, well, actually, people saw another man around her apartment. Maybe this man killed her. Yeah, he was burning clothes, but that's just what he does. That doesn't mean that he killed her. So I do get why, even though like circumstantial evidence can result in convictions, I definitely understand why people investigating these crimes try to push for getting that direct evidence before they go to trial. But in cases like that, where like you said, he was seen leaving her apartment, people heard screams, they saw him burning clothes, his cell phone pinged, like we're the near where they actually that's more direct evidence but no that's actually still circumstantial evidence and it's considered circumstantial evidence because you can't prove that they're the one actually holding the phone oh yeah so unless you can put that phone in their hand at the time something is committed then it becomes direct evidence but if you're just saying that hit their cell phone pinged at the same location where a murder happened that's still circumstantial evidence because how do you know it was my client with their phone Their phone was stolen a week ago, and now their phone is at the scene of a crime scene. So police interview Darlene's five-year-old daughter, Abby, again, and are asking her whether there was anyone that her mom was fighting with, anybody that was angry at her mom, anything she can remember. And she tells detectives about an altercation that Darlene had with one of Darlene's friends at a grocery store, resulting in the man making a stabbing motion at Darlene. And police identified this man as an old friend of Darlene that she actually once dated. And in this interview with police, the man confirms that he joked about hurting Darlene because she kicked him out of the house. I feel so bad for Darlene, but this is now the third man to threaten her because she has kicked them out of the house or moved on with her life. This poor woman. Yeah, and men are just so unable to deal with rejection and they lash out in a violent way and it's it's just so sad to me that women often get caught in the crossfires of men's inability to deal with their emotions correct and it's it's ridiculous if you're somebody who struggles with rejection if you just can't handle being told no you need to go sit on a couch somewhere and deal with that i personally just feel like anybody who resorts to violence resorts to threats, resorts to anger because somebody told them no, there's deeper stuff that you need to go deal with because that's just not okay. Exactly. But people who do that also usually are not aware enough to know that "Mm, this isn't right and I I should do something about this. I disagree. I don't think they're unaware. I think they're unwilling. Well, I would say that they're unaware in the sense that they don't necessarily see something wrong with the way that they're acting. Fair. I give you that. And so they're not thinking, mm, I should, I should do something about this. They're just like, oh, everybody else is wrong. Of course, everybody's, tri- everybody's tripping because, and you're just so right. And you just, you know, punch through walls on a Tuesday night after you've had a bad day. And that's normal. Sir, get out of here. Get out. So during the interview, this man gives his alibi and states that he was actually out with his girlfriend the night before the murder. And he had a doctor's appointment the morning of. And police are able to confirm this. He consents to giving a DNA sample. And when tested, this was not a match to the blood found at the scene. So again, we're back at square one. One other interview that I'll mention is an interview that police did with a boy named Jonathan Hanna, who was actually April's boyfriend at the time. And April is Darlene's 16-year-old daughter. Nothing really came of this, though, so not much detail to give there. So three months after the murder, April contacts her brother, Jonathan, and 
tells him seemingly out of nowhere that she actually thinks her ex-boyfriend Brian Landry killed Darlene. And just a side note, Brian Landry is not Brian Laundry from the Gabby Petito case. Two very separate people with very similar sounding names. That's not funny, but that's funny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cause actually when I when I heard I was like, Brian Landry, that sounds so familiar. Is that Look, and it's like, and clearly the timeline doesn't make any sense, but my brain was like, oh, clearly that's the same person. What? <laughs> yes, yes. So I was like, I'm sure people might think that too. So let me go ahead and state that. A little bit of background on Brian Paul Landry. Brian was 18 at this time, living in Cypress, California, which is about 20 minutes from Santa Ana. He was attending college and wanted to join the military. Even though he was 18, he met April in mid-2007, and they began a romantic relationship at the end of July 2008. April was 16 at the time, and Brian was 18. 16 to 18 is a bit more understandable because in the context, if this were high school, there's still some people in high school who are 18. And I knew people who were seniors dating sophomores my main thing is mindset like why are you attracted to somebody with a younger mindset and to me a senior in high school has a similar mindset to a sophomore in high school yeah I was gonna say I think I'm of the opinion that if y'all are but even then I'm more so it's like y'all got to be in the same high school right and y'all have to have known each other like Cause here's my issue, right? I actually don't have a big issue with 18 year olds dating 16 year olds who go to the same high school and have established a previous knowing of each other prior to them turning prior to whoever the older partner is turning 18. I don't have a problem with that. I have a problem with the 18 year old senior who dates the 13 year old freshman. That's what I have a problem with that. In my opinion is never appropriate because that's just gross. We're, <laughs> we're, <laughs> It's, it is their children. Like, looking at 13-year-olds, they look like literal babies. But I, I wouldn't say that they necessarily need to go to the same high school. Because I know, I know cases where maybe they go to the same church. Okay, fair. Or, like, they might have mutual friends. They might have met at a teen event or something. But I do agree, like, y'all were, y'all knew each other beforehand. And now you're 18 and they're 16. Um, so. Right. Because I'm even sure there's even... I'm pretty sure there's even laws that allow that. I think it's called the Romeo and Juliet law. That's in Georgia specifically. Yeah. As long as there is some previous knowing of each other beforehand, I'm kind of cool with it. I think I think I'm cool with it. Brian met April mid-2007 and they began a romantic relationship at the end of July 2008. So yeah, that puts him, that puts her knowing him prior to him turning 18. Because if he's 18 in 2008, he obviously he's 17 in 2007. Okay. So they met when he was 17 and April was 15. In August, a month before Darlene's murder, Brian apparently told Darlene that he wanted to marry her daughter, April. And in response, Darlene became angry and banned Brian from coming to her home. Because why are you asking to marry my 16-year-old daughter? Yeah. <laughs> I understand as a parent being like, no, my 16-year-old daughter, like, I don't think 16 is not old enough to get married. I can understand a 16-year-old being like, yes, I want to marry this man because that's that teenage brain. But as the parent, knowing, you know, having experience being a teenager, knowing that you learn a lot of stuff about yourself after that point, being like, no, you cannot marry my 16-year-old daughter. She's not ready for that. So I under I very much understand why she gave pause. Though you can legally get married at 16 in the state of Georgia, at least. I don't think that anybody needs to actually get married at 16. I don't think you should do that. However, I do wonder, I know we don't know a lot about Darlene's childhood. I wonder if Darlene had her oldest son very young. I wonder if it didn't work out with his father when she was very young. But I wonder if she's letting her negative experience with Jonathan's father, who hasn't been mentioned yet. I wonder when they met. I wonder when they got together. I wonder if they got married when they were 18 and she was like, this is a bad idea. And I have already made this mistake and I'm not going to let my daughter 
make this mistake either. I think that's an interesting point too. I have a very sneaking suspicion that there's no way that he said, I want to marry your daughter. And she just said, get out for no reason. I feel like there's got to be some deeper stuff going on because I don't even feel like, because in a reality, the situation is on paper, he did it correctly. He came to her mother and told her mother of his intentions to marry her daughter. And I'm assuming to get the blessing, right? So on paper, he did it correctly. So why did she have this reaction of like, you're banned from coming to this house. You need to leave my daughter alone, whatever the situation was, unless there was actually some deeper issue going on here. Um, I didn't find anything about like any negative communications that Brian had had with Darlene prior to this, as well as anything that he might've done to April prior to this that would have given Darlene. And when I, when I say banned, I don't know if Darlene was like, get pushing him out, get out. Or she was like, I don't want to see you in my house again. But I mean, even if it, even if it was just a calm, even if it wasn't a confrontational experience, I, I think, I don't know. It just be, it just feels like there's a deeper issue. And her reaction was to ban him from the house. Even if it was just a, don't bring your butt back into my home. I wonder if something happened that kind of led you to be like, you cannot come into my home other than just asking for a marriage proposal. Cause I think it could have been, I don't believe y'all are ready. Let's see where this goes. You know, like maybe a more of a conversation was had. That's just as valid of a response as kicking him out. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure why. Um, I'm not sure why she decided to ban him from the home. So April said that she actually wasn't too hurt by her mom kicking him kicking Brian out because she had actually decided to break up with him. And she said that she hadn't spoken to him since. However, they discovered that April lied when she said that she and Brian had not spoken since they broke up. They were actually talking the night before the murder and the morning of. Not she lied. Wait, she lied. (laughs) So at this point, police are very interested in Brian. And this is 2008. So, because I'm thinking like, girl, you know, they can check phone records, but I am thinking this is 2008. Phones are still relatively new. So I don't think people knew how much data your phones carried. Girl, I think in 2023, people don't realize how much data their phone carries. But I think people at least know that they can check your phone records. You're correct. The amount of data that you choose to give your phone, insane. Police are definitely looking at Brian now. And when they check his social media, they find his MySpace page. Throwback to MySpace. I never had one. I wasn't allowed to have social media until I was 16 years old. Yeah, shout out to MySpace. I also was not allowed to have social media. I got to be 15 and have social media. So police check Brian's social media and find his MySpace page with several videos and photos with firearms. They also find a photo of Brian wearing all dark clothing. They start to consider whether if Brian came to Darlene's house and killed her wearing all black clothing, could Abby have seen what he was wearing and thought he was a ninja? Especially if he had a mask on. Yeah, exactly. While police suspected him, they hadn't interviewed him yet, and they didn't want him to know yet that they were onto him. So they actually used another tactic to get his DNA first to compare to the blood sample. Coincidentally, Brian had reported his bike stolen to the Cypress Police Department. So the Santa Ana police called him in and used this as a guise to get him to come to the station and look at photos of bikes that they'd recovered. During this time when he was looking at these photos, he touched several items and drank from a bottle of water that they provided. Got you. Mm-hmm. So after he left, police sent these items to the lab. They compared Brian's DNA to the blood they found at the scene. And it was a match. I absolutely love when police do investigations and they do it in a backwards kind of way. 
it kind of brings me a lot of joy because we could just we could just call him and ask him to come up here and give a DNA sample or we could lie to him like and just make him give it to us because if our listeners don't know the police are absolutely allowed to lie to you the police do not have to tell you the truth also anybody who believes that if you ask a cop if they're a cop they have to tell you that's also not the case police are allowed to lie to you especially in the context of seeking justice they're allowed to lie to you about absolutely everything the moment you throw something away it is now public domain they can go dig through your trash get all your dna everything you throw away because now it is public property love it and that is exactly why brian did not have to consent to giving his dna because as soon as he left that room the water bottle that he drank from and all of the other things that he touched were fair game for police to collect and send off to the lab so it seems like this process actually took a bit of time from them interviewing all these people to april naming um april naming brian because the detectives don't interview him until April of 2009, which was seven months after Darlene's murder. And this interview takes place for about three hours. And at first, they don't tell Brian that he is a suspect. They are just interviewing him to ask about Darlene in general. So when they ask about Brian's relationship with Darlene, Brian said that it was fine and he would help her out around the house sometimes. When they asked about his alibi, Brian said that on the day of the murder, he went to a religious group meeting at his school with a friend. My God is your alibi. God got me. <laughs> and God said, bro, you, you on your own this time. <laughs> at this point, police confront Brian with the evidence. And Brian asked the police if they're going to read him his Miranda rights. After reading them, Brian actually waived his Miranda rights and confesses to the murder of Darlene Sadler. And this is what I got from the appeal document. Apparently, while he was recounting what happened, he was leaned back with his head in his hands. And by the end of this story, he was resting his arms on the table in front of him. And throughout this interview, he was talking softly, but responding simply to all of the detective's questions. He wasn't going into any extra detail. If they asked him something, he answered it. But he really wasn't very talkative. So I think that he was kind of resigned to his fate at this point. He realized that they had him and there really wasn't much he could do at this point. But here's the thing. You asked. You asked if you were going to be Mirandized. You asked to be read your rights. You asked to be told that you could stop the interview and request a lawyer. And then you did not stop the interview and request a lawyer. What do you mean? Obviously, thank God for stupid criminals because that's how a lot of these cases get solved. But you asked for your rights and then said, you know what? Screw that right. Like, that's <laughs> so stupid. I don't, I don't know why he, I don't know why he did that, but we will see something come up in a little bit that talks about, talks about the interview and that process. So Brian admits to killing Darlene but he also states that this was April's idea and that she kept asking him to do this specifically April told him that if he didn't do it she was going to kill her mother herself once she turned 18 and I'm actually thinking why would you if you wanted to kill your mother why would you wait until you turned 18 when you could be tried as an adult exactly you'd be tried as an adult but like you said stupid criminals get caught more easily. So I'm not mad at it. So the following is a recounting of events that came from Brian's interrogation. On September 18th, 2008, Brian biked from Cyprus to Santa Ana with a backpack carrying a handgun and dark clothing. He parked his bike across the street from Darling's home and got dressed in the all dark clothing that he was wearing, including a mask. He arrived at Darling's house around 9 a.m., but Addie and Darlene were actually still out from dropping April off at school earlier. He gets into the house by sticking his hand in a mail slot to unlock the door. At this point, Brian gets a text from April asking him if things were going to plan. So this girl is in school texting 
this man saying, hey, you still going to kill my mom? Wow. Which is, it's just wild. Okay, here's also the thing. We love a stupid criminal. Stupid criminals. Stop asking your accomplice if everything is going to play and, and leaving a paper trail. Like, because here's the reality of the situation. is clearly this is a premeditated plan. Clearly y'all have talked about everything that was going to happen, right? Yeah. If that's the case, why do you feel the need to check on them? Just come home and find the body and move on with your life. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. but also April, April, how could you do this to your sister? How could you do that to her? How could you ruin a child's life like that? Especially when you as somebody has struggled with depression and struggled with self-harm. How could you do that to a child? Knowing that her sister is going to be home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would say it's very clear that April's actions were selfish. And so doesn't see, it doesn't seem like she was even thinking about her sister. Oh, that's very clear. So Brian is waiting in the house for Darlene to get home. Darlene arrives at home and was making food in the kitchen when Brian walked up to her from behind and shot her. The sad part is she was only home for about five to ten minutes before Brian attacked her. After this, Brian escorts Abby, who just witnessed her mother get shot, to her bedroom, comes back out, and shoots Darlene two more times. After doing all of this, he stuck a knife in her neck and severed her spine to, quote-unquote, make sure it was done. I have so many thoughts. And the first one is, you had the whole grain, gluten-free, sourdough, with honey and butter, audacity, to shoot her mother in front of her and then be like, okay, I'm going to go take you to bed. The hell? That is such a cold-blooded thing to do. That's my first issue. My second issue is the amount of force that it takes to sever somebody's spine is immense. Especially if there's only one stab wound. I don't know how big this dude is, but he put his whole force into jamming that into her neck. There are people who are stabbed in the back multiple times and are attacked and their spines, spinal cords aren't severed. There's a level of precision and there's a level of force that is required to do that. That's insane, oh my God. Because shooting her in the head three times wasn't good enough for you. Oh my God. Yeah. So after he stuck the knife in her, he collected two of the shell casings, but couldn't find the third one and just assumed that it went down the drain, which don't know why you would assume that, but okay. And in the midst of stabbing Darlene, Brian had cut himself, of course, and left blood on the door as he ran out, which is where that smear came from. Finally. He texted April to let her know that it was done. After this interview, both Brian and April are arrested for the murder of Darlene Sadler. And Brian specifically was charged with conspiracy to commit murder and was charged with murder. I don't know April's charges because she was a juvenile. She was charged in juvenile court. So, of course, those records are sealed. They didn't try her as an adult? They did not try her as an adult. That's crazy because it's giving she orchestrated this. Definitely. I mean, she she is responsible for her mother's death, for her mother's murder. After Brian's arrest, uh, police also search his mother's home. They found a disassembled Ruger 22 caliber handgun, a holster, and ammunition that matched the shell casings that they found at the scene. Interestingly enough, the gun that they found that they matched to the one that Brian used to kill Darlene Sadler was a gift to him given by his grandmother. Giving your grandson a gun and finding out that he used it to kill somebody, I would be very hurt. On top of knowing that your grandson was responsible for somebody's death, knowing that he used a gift you gave to him to do it, I would be especially hurt by that. Absolutely. So now we're going to talk about the trial. So the trial takes place in 2012, a few years after Brian and April are charged, which is something that we do see in many cases that the trial takes place a bit of time after the person or persons are actually charged with the crime. I'll mostly be talking about Brian's trial. Since April was tried as a juvenile, all of her court records are sealed. We do know that April pled guilty to all charges and was sent to a juvenile detention facility. However, we don't know how long she was sentenced for. 
but she is out today. I'm utterly disgusted because, in my humble opinion, she orchestrated this crime. Could you imagine having to look in your sister's face knowing that she ruined your life and the fact that she's just walking around out here without a care in the world when she took away your mother she took away the opportunity for you to have a mother growing up I feel so bad for her siblings and her family and if they choose to forgive her I wish them nothing but the best what I do know is there would be no universe where we would ever speak to each other again There's no universe where you would ever have contact in my life again. Definitely agree there. Like, and she's just out living life now. Out as a free person. Living a life that she denied her mother. Exactly. So moving over to Brian's trial. Brian actually pled not guilty despite all the evidence that they had on him. And so let's, let's recount this evidence. One. Brian's DNA matched a blood stain that the police found at the scene. Two, cell phone records show that he and April were in communication the night before and the morning after the murder. And three, they have a videotape confession from the police interview. However, Brian explains that his blood was probably on the door because a month prior in August, April had whipped him with a tree branch, causing him to bleed, and she tended his wounds in the house. I don't I mean, I, I don't even know where to start with that. Like, did she get a switch on this man? I was just about to say, she hit him with the grandma, go get your switch. <laughs> and yeah, so also, even if this were true, why would Darlene leave a blood stain on her door for a month? Let's also talk about how, like, DNA that is not preserved is not going to last that long. Like, how about we just talk about that? Exactly. And again, why would somebody leave a blood stain in their house for a month and not clean it up? Brian also claimed that Jonathan Hanna, who was April's boyfriend at the time, actually handed him the gun after the murder and told him to get rid of it. And that's how he explained him having the gun that they matched to the weapon that the killer used. Even though we know that your grandma bought it for you. So now grandma actually bought it for the ex-boyfriend and the ex-boyfriend gave it to you, even though it was your grandmother who gave it to him. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. But yeah, so he tries to pull in April's boyfriend, other boyfriend at the time, Jonathan Hanna, into this and said that it was actually him. He also stated that he made that confession to police to protect April because he was intimidated by the police. I don't know how you're protecting her if you're also incriminating her, but these are all of the reasons that he used to say that he was not guilty despite all the evidence that they had against him. So during this trial, Jonathan Hanna, April's boyfriend, also testifies. And here we find out that he was part of a three-way call with Brian and April in the summer of 2008 where they actually discussed Darlene's murder. And April said that she wanted her mom to die and Brian was going to help. However, the next day, April told Jonathan that this plan actually wasn't going to happen. So I guess Jonathan was like, why are we talking about killing your mother? And April was like, oh, nope, nope, that's not actually going to happen. So Jonathan didn't say anything about this. He didn't even mention this in his police interview. Right. My whole thing is there is no way I know we and I know we talked about this with Sharon, but there's no way anybody could tell me they were planning to kill anybody and I not run to the closest police station. Like, I'm a snitch. I don't care. (laughs) I am going to snitch. I will not go down for you. I will not catch a charge for anybody. Uh, For real, like my life is not worth going to jail for you. I believe since he was on the stand and at this point he realized that April had actually done this he was forthcoming and told the court about this three-way call. Jonathan Hanna April's boyfriend also testifies that on another occasion that summer when he April and Brian were at Brian's house Brian showed Jonathan a Ruger handgun 
the same one that police found at his house. And when asked whether he believed that April could have had a romantic relationship with Brian, Jonathan admitted that April had cheated on him before, so he wouldn't have been surprised if Brian was also dating her. I think it's especially dirty to bring the person you're cheating with around your partner, though. That is wild to me. Agreed. That is a level of disrespect. That's a level of disrespect that you cannot come back from. Yeah, exactly. Because like, wow, you really don't care. So at the end of the trial, Brian is convicted of conspiracy to commit murder and given 25 years to life. However, a mistrial was declared for the second charge of murder because the jury couldn't reach a unanimous verdict. A month later, though, in exchange for the prosecutors agreeing to dismiss a gun charge, Brian pled guilty to the murder charge and was also given an additional sentence of 25 years to life for this. So now we're after the trial. Where is everyone now? Jonathan, Darlene's son, has actually claimed that his sister April has tried to contact him, but he doesn't want anything to do with her. I'm not sure where Abby is at this point, but I hope that she is doing well and that she is healing and recovering as much as possible from the trauma that she experienced at such a young age. Yeah, and I hope that April never has the audacity to reach out to her. I agree. We also know that in August of 2013, Brian filed an appeal. And he claimed in this appeal that the evidence of his confession should not have been allowed in court because he was not Mirandized until more than halfway through the police interview. And he said that his confession contained involuntary statements he made due to their improper interrogation tactics. However, the court denied this appeal for lack of evidence and said that his appeal didn't meet the standard for making the determination that he was trying to make. So he was denied a new trial and the judgment was upheld. Do we know if his sentences are being served consecutively or concurrently? I believe that his sentences are being served consecutively. And just for our listeners, if you have a concurrent sentence, that means you're serving for two separate crimes at the same time. So he would only serve 25 years to life for both crimes versus if you are serving consecutively, you would have 25 for one crime and 25 for another, meaning you would serve 50 years prior to being eligible for parole. So Brian is continuing to serve out his sentence in the Calipatria State Prison, which is in Southern California, very close to the Mexican border. This is not a super solid source, but um, in regards to April, I found a Facebook thread mentioning that April left her juvenile facility in 2017. So that means that she served anywhere from five to eight years, depending on when she was actually sentenced. She served less than 10 years on essentially conspiracy to commit murder, which carries a life sentence. You could be sentenced to jail for life for conspiracy to commit murder. And she got less than 10 years for her mom at that. I think that the primary reason that she didn't get tried as an adult is because she pled guilty. Had she pled not guilty and still tried to deny, I could see them trying her as an adult. But because she pled guilty, I think that's why everything was kept in juvenile court. I think they should have did it regardless. The level of calculation that it took to plan out her mother's murder you're not thinking like a child. You're thinking like an adult. And thus you should be charged as one. Exactly. And one thing that we're not clear on is why. We know that they were arguing often and we know that Darlene had we know that Darlene had banned Brian from coming to the house. What we really saw here too was April using Brian to get what she wanted. Not to say that Brian is not aware and in control of his actions however he would not have done this had april not asked him to do it i agree and that's why i feel so strongly about her not being tried as an adult because 
essentially, she got a slap on the wrist for murder. Yep. She ruined so many people's lives and is able to live hers out and free. You ruined at least five people's lives. Your younger sister, your brother, your unknown sibling that we were not able to find the name of, a husband, and your own. You have ruined any opportunity to have any loving relationship with your family. Any other any other thoughts about this case, friend? April, I hope that if you seek forgiveness, that is one day given to you. However, I don't believe your family has any reason to forgive you. I don't believe that you have any right to enter their lives again. You don't have any right to claim that you are a sibling of theirs and that you love them because your selfish actions, your decision to ruin so many people's lives is solely on you. And this might be an unpopular opinion, but in all honesty, I feel like you got away with it. I mean, I think it's a very popular opinion. Five to eight years is nothing. Five to eight years for murder is nothing. That's why I'm not going to lie, dude. Like, I feel, while I understand that juvenile court is extremely important for, like, nonviolent, heinous crimes, I just genuinely feel like when we get to kids who are murderers, when we push over into murder, when we push over into planning a crime, and then, and then to whistle blow on your ex like he won't rat you out yeah that was the interesting thing yeah you blew the whistle on him and you thought see see, like so you blew the whistle on him and this tells me that you're an arrogant person because you thought there's no way he'll flip on me there's no way he'll turn on me he's only going to go to jail for life he will stand there and take 100 responsibility for the murder of my mother what is wrong with you? That was that was actually wild. Like why? Because police didn't have anything to go off of. They didn't. They were not going to link Brian to this. Exactly. But so that's another thing too. Is like what? So I don't know. Maybe 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 she does have a heart or a soul somewhere, and she finally started feeling guilty about what happened. But again, like so, you call your brother hysterical, telling them that your your ex boyfriend did all of this. When you knew good and damn well that you had text messages with this person checking in to make sure that he had done it. But I will say, though, I think that there are cases where children might commit violent crimes that I do think juvenile court is beneficial, um, especially considering like the context of those cases, especially if the child felt like they needed to do that for self-protection or protection of another person. Now, and I agree with you, in most states, those don't get categorized as murder. They get categorized as manslaughter, or if you're in a stand your ground state, it's stand your ground, because juveniles are still allowed to stand their ground. And the last one is justifiable homicide, basically being this person threatened me, my well-being was at stake, or the well-being of somebody I cared about was at stake. So I responded with a appropriate amount of force. Those, I think, are those situations where the death of another person wasn't, when it wasn't planned out and calculated, and then you attempted to hide evidence and get away with it. That's a level of thinking that doesn't happen in those kind of cases, which I think those kind of cases should be kept in juvenile court. But this one, where you conspired for months, as far as we know, it could have even been years, like you conspired for a month to murder your mother in such a brutal way too. That's, I don't, I don't think that's a place for juvenile court. Yeah, I agree. She should have been tried as an adult. But Sisters Who Killed just did their last episode on a child who killed. I'm not going to I'm not going to spoil anything, but let us say I haven't listened to it yet. Don't ruin it for me. <laughs> there was a consideration of whether it was premeditated. However, I'm not going to spoil it because you haven't listened to it yet. Um, But I think that was a case where I was like, yeah, this child should still be in juvenile court even if it was premeditated, because I still think there can be cases where a child feels like they're doing it for their protection, but they still need to plan it. It's like if they're being continuously assaulted in any type of way, they might still plan it out. So it's technically premeditated, but it was still, it wasn't for their immediate protection, but they felt like they could not live life. They can't, they're like, I can't continue to live this way. I'll definitely be sure to check back, check out that episode and you and I can talk about that more off air for sure. 
I think it also just depends on, it depends on state to state too, because you know, in some states, the, if you decide to kill somebody five seconds before you do it, that's considered premeditation. It doesn't have to be a long drawn out plan. It's like the moment you decided to pull a trigger in somebody's chest, even if it was that one second before is you premeditated to kill them. You may not have planned to get rid of their body and all the steps you take afterwards, but you plan to kill them the moment you decided to pull that trigger. Do you know what states have like really, um, I guess, really broad laws of premeditation? Uh, South Carolina, um, California, I think, uh, Florida. Mm, of course. Of course. Just those are just the those are the couple I know off the top of my head because I've watched those cases where it's like the moment he crossed the threshold of her front door, he decided to kill her. That's premeditation, you know? Yeah. You know, I, this case was really sad to hear. Just, you know, a five year old witnessing her mother's murder and trying to cope with it in the best way she knew how, as well as, you know, just the fact that. It was the person's own daughter who was responsible for her murder. And I guess the, the most unfortunate piece is while her murderer is behind bars, the person who planned everything is out and free. Yeah. Darlene was very much murdered in a way that she didn't deserve in a manner that was unnecessary and so senseless. The part that really breaks my heart is Abby, because yes, while Darlene went out so horrifically, Abby has to live with it. Abby saw it. Abby has to carry that weight with her for the rest of her life. Like I have memories from being five. Those things stick with you and they're not nearly as traumatic as, as seeing your mother shot, as finding her body, as attempting to take care of her. That piece is extremely heartbreaking is she felt like she could do something. She felt like she could help her mom. And she couldn't. And that's so, so terribly sad. Again, in the spirit of not wanting to hold these lovely people up for another three hours, I think that's where I'm going to leave it, friend. So thank you guys so much for joining us for this episode. Please be sure to follow this podcast and leave a five-star review if you are enjoying the stories. We appreciate every listen and we appreciate every single one of you. Stay nosy, my friends. And we look forward to talking to you all in our next episode. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone.